Welcome to Curiosityness, episode 61, the fourth and final part of the Moon Landing 50th anniversary series that I'm doing. And by I'm, I mean me, and I am Travis DeRose, the host of the show that you're listening to. And on this episode, for the fourth part of the Moon Landing series, I have on Rick Houston. And Rick is the author of Go Flight, The Unsung Heroes of Mission Control. And is just a great author who's written a ton of books about NASA and uh, also NASCAR for that matter. But uh, we're talking about NASA in this, this part. And he just explains what it was really like to be in Mission Control and gives it, you know, kind of shines a light on the people who worked at Mission Control because sometimes their work can be clouded by the astronauts and and they're not as public. So it's really fun to hear Rick talk about this because he studied it so in depth. And Rick uh, also serves as the technical advisor and he was an extra on the set for the film First Man, which came out recently about Neil Armstrong. And uh, also this book that he wrote, Go Flight, um, inspired uh, a documentary that was called Mission Control, The Unsung Heroes of Apollo. So Rick's very qualified for this. He knows a lot of info and it was really fun to talk to him. So hope you enjoy this final installment of the moon landing 50th anniversary and here we go. What's up, Rick? How you doing? I'm doing well. How about you, Travis? Doing good. Thank you. Thank you. I'm pretty excited to talk to you. You've had uh, kind of a cool, fun career involved with with NASA and NASCAR, and it, it just seems uh, like you cover some very fun, exciting stuff. Well, I've been very fortunate to kind of pursue two of my life's passions. Um, NASCAR and NASA. I, I've always been um, fascinated by a, ordinary people doing extraordinary things, and certainly there's nothing more extraordinary than than flying in space and, and driving a race car at 200 miles an hour. <laughs> yes, very true. It's just so crazy. And gotta say, with a name like Rick Houston, I think it's it it just sounds like you're qualified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> It's funny you mention that because honestly and truly, that is kind of what got me interested at first in the space program. Because when I was a kid, uh, I was probably five or six watching one of the later moon landings with my mom. My dad was in Vietnam at the time, mm-hmm. and every I, I watched it on the news, and and I was I, I thought it was cool that every other word that they said seemed to be Houston. Right. And in my mind, in my four or five-year-old mind, they were talking to me. Right. You know, so ever since then, I've, I've just been, you know, uh, intrigued by space flight. Yeah, that's pretty fun. Because, yeah, even when, you know, someone is talking to someone else, but they call your name, you always look and are paying attention. So when you hear your last name called on, on TV like that so often, that's got to be very exciting for a, for a kid for sure. Well, you know, I, I will say this, the whole Houston, we've had a problem thing kind of got old, uh, you know, 
the, <laughs> good. the first the first two two thousand times that I heard it, uh, it was funny. But since then, yeah, maybe not so much. Yes, that's a good point. I can only imagine how how often people think they're being so clever with that, but you've heard it so many times. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I can assure you, it's not the first time. Right. Well, I'll avoid that here so we don't have to sit through that, um, luckily. But, uh, yeah, I mean, let's just start with, like, you know, I'd love to hear kind of your story and your background and how what you've done and how you got involved with, uh, you know, covering NASCAR and NASA and, you know, any other stuff. Like, I guess what's kind of your your quick bio or, or what do you – when people – someone asks what you do, what do you, what do you generally tell them? Well, number one, uh, I, I don't have a quick bio, man. <laughs> it, it took a it took a long long time to uh, to to get to the point where I was able to write a book like Go Flight and certainly be involved in a um, in a film like Mission Control. Uh, but but basically, the basics is uh, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee originally, mm-hmm. and I wanted to get into NASCAR. Uh, so, uh, I, I moved from Nashville, Tennessee to, uh, to North Carolina, uh, went to a couple of races and was sneaking food out of the press box, sleeping in my car, uh, you know, uh, trying to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. I went to the next race and found out that they didn't serve food in the press box until Sunday and got there on Friday. So, uh, I, I slept in my car, uh, that Friday night and it was, I, I had a pretty serious talk with God Yeah, <laughs> and, um, I wound up that weekend getting, getting a contact, uh, with a guy who gave me my first real job in journalism, uh, wow. at a little, at a little newspaper, uh, in the Hills of North Carolina. Uh, I, I took that job, uh, at the, at the little newspaper and stayed there two years, uh, basically learning the trade. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, uh, I, I got my dream job with a with a publication called Winston Cup Scene, which was at that time uh, basically the the New York Times of the NASCAR world. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. when you um, when you said you wanted to go out and kind of get involved with NASCAR, was it always to um, kind of be a journalist and report on it, or did yes, you sir. ever? Okay, yeah. you never yeah. felt the drive to to drive. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I, I I have been able to take uh, a few of the driving schools, mm-hmm. uh, and I found that it, I found out that as a race car driver, I made a really good journalist. <laughs> Uh, I I don't have what it takes to uh, uh, to drive that fast, that close to so many other uh, people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's just incredible when you truly do, you know, think about it and look at what they're doing. It's it's crazy. And yeah, I got a chance to drive, um, uh, you know, like a race car, NASCAR kind of style car. In um, we have a man. Where's the track? It's in you know, like the desert in California here, about a two hour drive from me. But um, just one yeah. of those things where, you know, they let you drive a few laps around and stuff. And it, it was extremely fun. But literally the guy, you know, I, I'm in the car. I don't know how to drive a manual. I have an automatic. And the guy's just telling me to like he's on the headset telling me to floor it or, or break or anything like that. <laughs> telling me to yeah. do everything. But it's still it's 
it's scary at first and then it gets fun, but it's just so much adrenaline. It is, it is crazy. And you can really appreciate what's really going on for like, for how long are these races sometimes? Uh, 500 miles mostly, man. But how, how long is that? Does that take generally? Uh, maybe three and a half hours, three, three and a half hours. It's crazy. Yeah. And just, they just have to keep just incredible, intense focus that entire time. Right. Well, you know, it, there's the age-old debate whether or not race car drivers are actually athletes. Uh, I would, I would um, challenge somebody who says that a race car driver is not an athlete mm-hmm. to to strap in and hang on uh, for three <laughs> and a half hours. And I would, I would assure you that after that three and a half hours was over, uh, that that critic would be a believer. <laughs> yeah, anyone who experiences it. Um, okay, cool. So you got into this, you got your, you know, your first real job, you're figuring out journalism and reporting for NASCAR and stuff like that. And you're, you're there for two years. And then where do you, where do you kind of go from there? Uh, I, I went to a newspaper called Winston cup scene, right. Uh, which was, which was the really, really big, uh, NASCAR newspaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, the newspaper, the weekly newspaper that I had been working for had a circulation of less than 5,000. And Winston Cup scene the week after I started there, uh, we went over a hundred thousand in paid circulation. Nice. You know, so it, it truly had a national reach, which was which was kind of eye opening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that must have been very exciting. So, and then, so what kind of stuff were you doing there? Were they just sending you to races, and you were reporting on it and writing about it? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I traveled the circuit, uh, went to every racetrack. Uh, actually went to Japan for the first exhibition race over there, uh, and it was it was really a cool gig. Uh, mm-hmm. It was really a cool gig for a, for a NASCAR uh, buff like me. Uh, but it, it it turned into a job uh, really quickly. Um, I was at the track when Adam Petty uh, lost his life in a in a crash uh, during practice, mm-hmm. and that was that was a really bad, really dark day. Yeah. Man, so wow. Um, I mean, do you when you say that it turned into a job quickly? Do you meant that it became kind of the novelty wore off and the fun wore off, and it just became something that you were almost forced to do? I don't want to say forced, uh, but it became more serious uh, because that was in May of two thousand. Uh, in July of 2000, we not lost another uh, driver at the very same racetrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in October of that year, uh, a, a driver in the truck series was killed. And then finally, uh, Dale Earnhardt, a seven-time champion, was killed on the last lap of the Daytona 500. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so that was, that was four fatalities uh, in, in less than a year. And it, it became, you know, uh, everybody was trying to get to the bottom of it. Everybody was, uh, trying to come up with all these safety ideas. And, um, you know, there, it, it was just a very volatile time, uh, in the sport. Wow. Yeah. I can imagine that would just have a, I mean, what kind of shift or change in attitude or any kind of regulations did that have on, on NASCAR as a whole? Oh, it was huge. Uh, it was, it was very huge. And, uh, I, I think one of the biggest reasons 
was that Dell Earnhardt himself uh, was very set in his ways, and he had refused to to try some of the safety things that that went into uh, effect after uh, he lost his life. Mm. And you know, since then. Uh, NASCAR has mandated the use of the Hans device. Uh, tracks are now lined with what are called safety barriers, uh, safer walls, uh, soft walls, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cars have been basically redesigned. And since since that day in Daytona in February of 2001, not a single uh, NASCAR driver has uh, been in a fatal accident. Not a single driver has been killed in NASCAR since that day oh my gosh that's incredible oh yeah yeah wow and is it it's is it completely attributed to these new safety regulations oh yeah yeah i mean it's and and i think now we're we're kind of in a in a situation where where they have a a i don't want to say a false sense of security uh but now I, I think a lot of the drivers think they're think that they're ten foot tall and bulletproof, and mm-hmm. you know don't mind running into another driver because their cars are. They think that their cars are completely safe, and the sport still is very dangerous. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. How I could see how that kind of mindset would come about, where it's been well, almost 20 years now without a fatality. So you can see how drivers would start to push the limit more and more. And yeah, hopefully, unfortunately it doesn't lead to, it doesn't, we don't need another, you know, fatality to, to wake some these people up again, but wow. Well, I hope not too. (laughs) Yeah. So are there, I mean, since that happened, are the cars relatively the same like performance wise or, um, are they getting faster or anything like that? Well, no, they're, they're, they're basically, uh, since that, since Dell Earnhardt's accident, uh, the cars have been completely redesigned. Oh, okay. Uh, and it, it, they almost don't, don't appear to even be anywhere near what they were on that day. Okay. Uh, you know, they're, they're very, they're very sleek. <clears throat> Uh, and I'm not, I'm not a mechanic, so I can't, I can't tell you all the, you know, the mechanical issues. I'm not an engineer, so I don't know all the engineering issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the safety modifications, uh, have, have just been absolutely phenomenal. That, yeah, that, that's great. That's extremely important. Yeah. Um, and so now are they like, I mean, is are all the cars kind of um standardized like is there like kind of an, a maximum amount of horsepower and stuff that you can have yes uh nascar uh they they redid the the uh the aerodynamic package this year mm-hmm. uh and they have also uh done away with the what's called a restrictor plate uh, and and used uh, tapered spacers to to do uh, to to limit the horsepower. Uh, so they are the cars are very similar, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I think that a lot of people have you know a little bit of an issue with that because they you know a lot of people like the certain particular manufacturers. 
you know, in other words, they're either Ford fans or Chevy fans, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or Dodge fans who's, you know, that make is no longer in the sport, but, mm-hmm. uh, they follow a certain manufacturer. So uh, okay. they would, they would rather see it go back to a more stock car. Okay. I see. Interesting. So, okay. So things are, so, I mean, I, I've watched some documentaries on like Le Mans and stuff like that. And that, it seems very much like the car, the cars are, are different. And it's almost like the car wins the race, you know, where, you know, like you have the, you have the Porsche team and everything like that. And the car is very important, but for NASCAR, was it, or is it maybe more where the cars are all similar or pretty much the same and it's more the skill of the driver that is the differentiating factor? Well, uh, I, I would, I would certainly never, ever, ever take a, a driver out of the equation, whether it be NASCAR or Le Mans or, uh, F1 or IndyCar, uh, because it, it takes an unbelievable skill, almost superhuman skill, uh, to be able to, to, to handle a machine like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in NASCAR, you're talking, you know, uh, I'm, I think they're what, 3,500 pounds now, 3,400 pounds now. I couldn't tell you exactly, but you know, it, it takes a, a very, uh, certain special skill, uh, to be able to sit in, strap in and, you know, turn that motor over and, and go racing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, it sounds it's something I kind of want to I don't obviously want to be a a a competitive racer, but I would love to get into more, you know, going to a a local track or something like that and just in trying some racing. It seems very fun because, you know, we have like like K1 speed or go kart and stuff like that, which is extremely fun. So I would love to get into some like recreational stuff and really learn, you know, how to follow the correct race line and all that stuff. It seems seems like a fun recreational thing to get into. Yeah. Uh, it, well, you know, if, and when you do that, you better make sure to have a whole lot of money <laughs> because they say they, uh, there's a saying in NASCAR that the, that the greatest way to make a small fortune in racing is to start out with a really big one. <laughs> yeah. That's encouraging. That's fun. Yeah. So even, even at the local level, you're, you're talking thousands of dollars. Okay. Maybe I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll keep on my go-karting for now. That's, that's yeah. satisfies it enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stick with your podcasting career. Yes. Yeah. This is good too. Um, okay, cool. That, um, thanks for sharing it. That was, that was, I've always been interested in that stuff. So that's very cool. Um, so when did, you know, you're covering NASCAR and stuff. When did kind of NASA come into the equation? Um, my, my interest in space flight, uh, was kind of rekindled. Uh, in 19, I believe it was 1995 when the movie Apollo 13 came out. Mm, yeah. Uh, and then three years after that, uh, John Glenn, uh, who was one of the original Mercury astronauts, uh, he flew, uh, on the board, the space shuttle. And of course there was a lot of news coverage about that. Mm-hmm. So from that point on, I, I had kind of a, of a dual, uh, obsession. You know, I was covering NASCAR. I was living in the NASCAR world, but I also uh, was very, very passionate about human spaceflight. You know, I, I'm I'm not the kind of person who can just have an interest in something 
you know, it, it's not enough for me to be able to read a book about a subject, put it down and, you know, that be it. You mm-hmm. know, when I, when I get really interested in something, uh, I, I dive in head first. And, you know, so I, I had to learn everything that I could about spaceflight, uh, watched all the documentaries, read all the books, talked to all the people, you know, all that kind of thing. So uh, it wound up uh, that uh, I got out of NASCAR in 2004 okay, uh, and uh, needed a job. Mm-hmm. And uh, just so happened to be able to be able, I, I just so happened to be able uh, to start freelance writing. Okay. And, um, one of the message boards that, that was on a lot, you know, in the space community and the NASA community, uh, uh, a, an author and ed- a book editor posted on that message board that he needed, uh, writers to fill out a, a book that he was, uh, that his publisher had planned mm-hmm. about the Apollo moon landings. Okay. And of course, and of course, I was interested. Yeah. So I sent him a message, and uh, basically, I and maybe one other person uh, that responded were actually professional writers. You know, several of the other people who responded were were basically uh, space fans mm-hmm. uh, with with some knowledge, and you know, the same kind of passion that I had. So uh, I was assigned. Uh, the chapter on Apollo 11, which was the first moon landing, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't really want to take it, uh, to be honest with you, because oh. that was a story that had been told so many other times, millions and millions of other times. So, you know, in my mind, what was I going to be able to add that was new right, and interesting to the reader? But the, the editor uh, kind of talked to me. And, uh, you know, asked me to take it and I wound up, it was actually kind of, I wound up taking the angle of the worldwide attention that was paid to the flight of Apollo 11. So I interviewed people from around the world, literally, mm-hmm. uh, who, you know, had watched and tuned in and wanted and, and were some, of the literally hundreds of millions of people that were watching the moon landing and later the moon walk. Yeah. Um, I actually talked to my dad, uh, my dad, my family, my dad, mom, dad, and I were actually living in Japan uh, at the time of Apollo 11 because he was in the army. And so I interviewed him about being in Japan and, you know, the reaction over there. And, 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 and Travis, that was actually three weeks to the day before he passed away. Oh, wow. So, yeah. He had cancer, uh, had lung cancer. Uh, and so that's a, that's a very special interview yeah. uh, that I have, you know, uh, and it was actually kind of neat because when I got done with my questions about Apollo 11, I just kept, I, I just kept recording mm-hmm. and with, you know, ans- you know, asking questions about, you know, all the family stories that I had heard him tell. So, you know, I got all that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is very cool. That's something I want to do um, with my family too. And and something I think everybody should do to just sit down and, and, you know, just ask all the questions that you've always wanted to ask that, you know, just may have never come up before, you know, just to kind of take that time and opportunity to to learn all that stuff and and record it. So other people can listen to too. your, your descendants can all have that stuff. So that's very cool that you got to do that. Don't put it off. 
Yeah, don't put it off, exactly. Don't put it off. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. And then, so this, you're, you're writing this book and everything that I love that, that angle of kind of, you know, talking to, to folks who got to experience it. And so what was kind of the, um, like what was, was everybody in Japan watching the, the footage of it too? And everybody was excited. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, that he said that everybody in Japan was, was huddled around TVs, that kind of thing. Uh, I, I talked to a guy who was actually a POW mm-hmm. uh, in Vietnam, and he he said that they actually found out uh, that people had landed on the moon by two means. Uh, number one, they got letters from home uh, that through the Red Cross that had the first man on the moon stamp. Oh, cool! You know, so that was you know that was one thing, uh, but he also said that. You know uh, the the um, the propaganda announcements would come over the the radio, and they would you know the propaganda announcer would say something to the effect of, you know, America may not may be able to put a man on the moon, uh, but they're never going to beat us. You know that kind of thing. They're never going to beat the Vietnamese. You know the and and all that kind of thing. So yeah, you know, that, that was you know a, a crazy way to find out. Um, uh, I talked to a guy who lived in, uh, behind the iron curtain, uh, in Czechoslovakia, you know, so yeah, I, I was, I was very pleased with how that chapter came out. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine it's just such a, you know, incredible step for all of humanity. So everybody's got to be watching, you know, whether you're, you know, American or not. And, but then also to feel that, to be an American and be watching in America to feel that, you know, kind of sense of, of pride and, and, and to be proud of your country and everything must just be incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think you're exactly right there. Uh, and you know, there are always going to be critics, you know, because the war in in Vietnam was going on at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, of course you had the, the civil rights movement, and then, you know, there was some criticism there, but by and large, by and large, that many people watching was one moment in time where everybody came together. Mm-hmm. You know, there, you know, all, all the naysayers, all the critics, you know, their, their voices kind of, you know, got quieted down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's what I that's what I think is cool about that kind of achievement. You know, it's not about us and them. It's not about you know one country versus another. At that moment in time, it was it was a human achievement. Even though, and I say that, even though you know the space race was very much a byproduct of the Cold War. You know, if it hadn't have been for the Russians. If it hadn't been for the Soviet Union, America would have never, ever, ever, ever stepped foot on the moon. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's interesting to look back and see the the steps of of what kind of happened and what caused these different things. Like, because um, I watched the the uh, Mission Control documentary, and and you know, pretty much everybody. I've heard of that. <laughs> it's pretty good. Check it out. Yeah, I've heard of that. <laughs> Um, yeah, pretty much all of them. They kind of mentioned that, you know, Sputnik, you know, looking up and seeing this man-made thing in the sky was really their first, like, 
eye opening, like, wow, what's, what's going on? This is what's possible, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, yeah, let's, let's lead into go flight. Um, so your book is called go flight. It's the subtitle is the unsung heroes of mission control. Um, so why, why did you decide to write that? (laughs) Um, the, the book, the chapter on the moon landings, led into a contract about a book about a book on the space shuttle program. Mm -hmm. And the book on the space shuttle program led into a book about one of the astronauts. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Houston to do the interviews with the astronaut for his book, uh, a guy that I had met, one of the flight controllers, uh, he took me around Johnson space center, you know, took me on a tour. Mm-hmm. And he took me to the robotics laboratory, and I got, excuse me, I got to uh, shake hands with Robonaut, uh, and that was that was cool, you know. Uh, and then he took me to the neutral buoyancy laboratory, which is the big swimming pool where the astronauts, you know, do their training for the uh, uh, spacewalks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he wouldn't let me go for a swim, so it wasn't, you know, it was cool to see, but yeah, you know, right. <laughs> But Travis, then he took me to the Apollo era mission control room. Mm-hmm. And I can I cannot begin to tell you the 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 feeling that that just struck me between the eyes as soon as I stepped foot in the room. Huh. And I mean, I'm I'm a history buff in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I, I have experienced that sense of history in Gettysburg. Uh, I have experienced that kind of feeling in Antietam and Dealey Plaza where Kennedy was assassinated. Mm-hmm. And I walked into that room and I was just hammered with this sense of history, huh. you know, because when, uh, when Neil Armstrong said Houston tranquility base here, the Eagle has landed. He was talking to that room. Yeah. You know, when the crew of Apollo 13 announced Houston, we've had a problem they were talking to that room and they were looking for help from that room. You know, uh, the last words that the crew of challenger ever spoke to, to earth were spoken to that room. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that is, that is history. And I'm not ashamed to say it. And I've, I've said it many times. I had tears come to my eyes, Yeah. you know, because I literally did not feel worthy to be standing there. Hmm. And in that moment, I knew that I wanted to do something uh, to honor the people that had worked there. Um, but but if I if I'd actually written a book uh, for every book idea that I'd ever had, uh, you know, it would fill up ten libraries. Right. Um, but about six months later, uh, I got an email from my book editor, uh, and he asked me if I had any other ideas, mm-hmm. any book ideas. And I said, uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. And I, I mentioned the the uh, I mentioned the mission control idea. And I mean that just that one just flew through. Yeah. It, I mean, it just sailed through because it was just such a no brainer mm-hmm. uh, that that we talk that we do something on them. Yeah. No. I very cool. That's awesome to hear that story. That you you know 
didn't, you know, maybe didn't have this on your mind at all, really, and got to go there and, and that you just experienced that and felt that so much and that that led to a book to tell the story of, of what it was like to be in, in mission control. So that's that's very cool. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, let's let's get into kind of what mission control is like. So, I mean, they how did mission control kind of come about? Because it wasn't they didn't have what it was now, like with, you know, everybody sitting in the one room facing the same way and everything initially. Right. It was that kind of came about after a few missions. No, uh, it was it was pretty much a it, it was pretty much a a kind of like that from the very beginning in, in Mercury. Uh, but it basically came about due to the just absolute, absolute sheer brilliance and genius of Chris Kraft. Uh, he is he is the creator of Mission Control, the concept, uh, the layout, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was it was under his uh, his it was under his tutelage that 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 room came together. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, the. The room in Florida was very basic. Um, it was, you know, it had a. Um, <laughs> I would have, I would have loved to to have experienced Mission Control at that time because, you know, all the knobs were were you know they would click when they when they turned and everything like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was actually a. Um, uh, a, a display at the front of the room where they tracked uh, the spacecraft, and it was actually pulled by by, by basically by pulleys. Wow! You know, and it would move across from left to right, and then as it went on around orbit, that icon was somehow pulled to the top of the screen, pulled back to the right, pulled back to the left, dropped back down. And started tracking again. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and that is the system that put America's first first person in space. Yeah. So think about that for a second. Right. It's yeah. It's just incredible to see. You know, because I there was a moment when I think uh, Chris Kraft mentioned in the in the documentary how he's like, well, this is what we need we need some computers and it's like people were almost like, well, what's a computer, you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. just like amazing. The, the technology that they were work with, that they were working with. And, you know, everyone always says whatever the, the thing of like the, the technology they use, the computer they used to, to put the man on the moon was, you know, one, one hundredth of whatever your, your phone is or whatever like that. But yeah. it's, it's yeah. true. And so it, it must yeah. be very cool to see all that stuff and hear the clicking knobs and it's very fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the thing that really gets me is, is the people who put all this together because, um, <laughs> Ed Fendel made the comment, you know, many times he, he says that there was no textbook on how to learn to be a flight controller. Yeah. They, they wrote that textbook themselves. Yeah. You know, and it was, it was trial by fire, trial by, you know, trial and error. Yeah. You know, and you know, the simulations, you know, not everybody who was hired to be a flight controller actually got to work a mission because Mm -hmm. the simulations weeded them out very quickly. You know, I, as much as, as I have lived in that, 
in that universe the last several years um, and have written about that universe in the, in the last several years, I know just enough to know that I could never be a flight controller myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have that ability to think on my feet that quickly. That's why I'm a writer, because I have to think about the message that I'm trying to get across. Yeah. And they, they simply didn't have that kind of time. No. You know, because, you know, the, the lives of, of astronauts depended, depended many times on their decisions that were made in the matter of a few seconds. Yeah. So that's a lot of pressure. That is a lot of pressure. Yeah. And I can imagine it takes a a very specific type of person to deal with that. And, you know, they, they talked about how, you know, there's all these different variables going on and people are like, well, what if the heat shield is, is, you know, broken or something like that for Apollo 13, I think, or yeah, I think Apollo 13. And well, he's like, well, we have no control over that, that if that's if that's the variable that's going to bring this mission down, then we can't worry about that. We have to worry about the things that are that we can actually influence right now. So it's yeah. just a, it's very interesting to see their thought process and how they are like able to be efficient in their in the things that they think about, even though something they may totally not even think about could take everything down. But, you know. It's just, I find it very, uh, very fascinating to see them work through that whole process. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when I think, when I think of a, of a flight controller making a, a call in the heat of the moment by the seat of his pants, I really think about, uh, John Aaron and, uh, the launch of Apollo 12. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but uh, 36 seconds after they lo- they left the launch pad in Florida, uh, they were struck by lightning. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few seconds after that, uh, they were struck by lightning again. Oh. Uh, which yeah, which just you know threw all their platforms offline, all their electrical platforms offline. And in mission control, you know, all they were hearing in their headsets was Pete Conrad, the the commander of the mission reading off this great big long list of malfunctions and, and warning lights that they were saying in the cabin, you know, and simulations, uh, two or three malfunctions uh, at one time would be excessive and would probably be caused for, you know, the, the test conductor to, you know, have a pretty stern, pretty stern lecture, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in training. But here Pete Conrad was, and he was reading off a list of seven, eight things, yeah. you know, 10, 12 things. So, uh, and basically nobody knew what to do, but John Aaron looked at his screen and he saw the, the data, you know, kind of scrambled up. And he, he thought to himself, you know, I, I've seen that before. I saw it back about a year ago, and I think that's what it is. And he called his back room to try to confirm it. And his backroom guy, who is actually one of his best friends, uh, said, I, I, I think so. I'm not sure. And before, you know, Jim Kelly got that out of his mouth, John Aaron was on the line to the flight director, Jerry Griffin, saying, OK, try, tell him to try SCE to Ox. Yeah. And Jerry Griffin had never heard of that. You know, he had never heard of that command. Mm-hmm. He talked to the, you know, Jerry Jerry Griffin told the uh, the the Capcom Jerry Carr 
you know, FCE to ox. No SCE to ox. You know, he didn't know what to tell him. Yeah. And so that message went up to the spacecraft. uh, And, you know, Pete Conrad had never heard of it. Uh, but Alan Bean, uh, who was sitting in the left in the right hand seat uh, next to that switch, knew where it was and flipped it. And John Aaron got his data back. And, you know, that was a decision that was made from the moment from the moment of the lightning strike to the actual flip of the switch. I want to say maybe ten seconds. Wow. Maybe fifteen. Yeah. At the- uh, so you you think about that kind of excellence, mm-hmm. you know, because John Aaron had had seen that pattern before, yeah. a yeah. year before, and remembered it. I know. And, you know, so many people make such a big deal out of that call. But in this case, it's it's. It's warranted. It's justified yeah. because it was the best seat of the pants call ever made in mission control. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Crazy. And then it happened so quickly after launch too. And then, yeah. and then I believe they said that it was pretty, it was a really smooth uh, mission after that, wasn't it? It was a very smooth mission after that. The only thing that really happened was uh, Alan Bean, while he was on the lunar surface, uh, pointed the camera. Uh, the surface camera at the sun and it fried the circuits. And so they didn't have TV. Oh, and that, that was basically, you know, their problem. Right. Now, now the, the concern became though, you know, that the lightning had triggered the pyrotechnics and, you know, all the, uh, the concern was that the, um, that the parachutes that they needed for landing had already been triggered. Oh, and that they, had, you know, so when they came back, they literally did not know if they were going to have parachutes to, to land with. Oh, man. Yeah. So, but it, it was like you said, it was one of those things that they, they could not control. That yep. they, you know, there, was any, there wasn't anything that they could do about it. Mm-hmm. So they figured, you know, we're going to go ahead to the moon. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to be any more dead you know, landing here than we will be if we go to the moon. So, yeah, exactly, yeah. man. And it, it's the, um, almost like juxtaposition of being, you know, you're in mission control, you're on land there, that the whole room is safe, but they're so responsible for the lives of, you know, these two or three men that are up in that ship and just the, you know, the amount of stress and everything that is goes on in that room, it just is incredible to see. Yeah. Well, mission rule number one is, is crew safety. Mm-hmm. You, you, you get the crew back. Yeah. You do whatever you have to do. And uh, that was a very, very serious um, undertaking. Mm-hmm. And they accepted that, yeah. you know, and, and they lived it. Was that because um, they talked about how the um, the the fire during the test what had such a big it kind of had a big sh- shift and, and change to the just the entire way they operated um, was was like the crew safety being number one. Was that there before that fire or was that kind of a result of that? 
Yes. <laughs> um, crew safety had always been number one. Right. But at the time of the Apollo 1 fire, there was also this very strong push uh, to get people to the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, maybe they kind of let that fall by the wayside, crew safety fall by the wayside in the rush to get to the moon. And, and uh, they had made everything work during uh, Mercury. They had made everything work during Gemini. Uh, they had had very serious problems during both programs. Uh, you had um, Gemini 8 uh, spinning out of control, uh, and they had, that, that problem had managed to you know, be fixed and, and not lose the crew. So you know, maybe they, they became a little lax uh, when it came to crew safety uh, and, and you know, were, were in a little in, in quite a in, in way too big a rush to get to the moon. I see. Yeah. Similar to kind of similar to the, um, the NASCAR stuff where, you know, there was four fatalities in one year. It's just like, unfortunately you just kind of need a big wake up call like that for everybody to really see the stakes and what's on the line again. Exactly. Exactly. And that, and I had never, I had never made that connection before, but you're exactly right. The situations, uh, were, were very similar, you know, before, uh, before the year 2000, you know, the sport had been, you know, relatively safe for, for a few years. Uh, there had been uh, a couple of fatalities in 1994 in what, over the course of two or three days, Mm -hmm. uh, in February, 1994, there had been uh, a a couple of incidents, uh, where drivers lost their lives. But, you know, when you see an accident in which a driver or a car flips, you know, 10, 15 times and, you know, the driver maybe doesn't walk away, but, you know, races the next week, Mm -hmm. you get kind of, you get kind of lax when it comes to safety. You know, that driver survived. So the next driver is going to survive. And that wasn't the case. Yeah. Man. Um, so what was it kind of like talking to and like, I mean, when you got to talk to these, the people that were actually in mission control and, and kind of lived it, did they sort of seem to have a, um, a, I'm sure they were very, you know, proud and nostalgic of the time and everything, but there was one moment I noticed in the, in the documentary where, um, I forget who it was, but he, he basically said if he could go back and do it all again, he wouldn't just because he missed so much time with his family. That, that's Bob Carlton. Bob Carlton. Uh, and it, it's funny, but, <laughs> um, by and large, Every single person that I talked to, uh, if you met them on the street, you would never, never, ever know that they once had this extraordinary job. Uh, they would, they would basically be the the grandpa and the grandstands watching these kids play basketball uh-huh. or baseball. You know, they they're they're just ordinary people. Um, and, and but they had again, they had these extraordinary stories. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you you mentioned the story that Bob Carlton told. Um, Bob Carlton dropped out of school in the ninth grade. 
and uh, he uh, joined the joined the Air Force, took an aptitude test, got got a degree, or you know, uh, and eventually went to Auburn University and got a degree in engineering. And and to talk to Bob, Bob has this just this awesome, awesome Alabama accent. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, he just talks like a good old country boy. And if I can say that somebody else has a Southern accent, you know, it's pretty thick. Right. Uh, But Bob went from being a ninth grade dropout to being in charge of Eagles fuel supply as they landed on the moon. Mm-hmm. In the last minute or two of that landing phase, Bob was the only one who was allowed to talk on the flight, on the flight loop. Wow. Because, you know, he was, you know, he, he was, he had a stopwatch and, you know, they were within 60 seconds mm-hmm. of running out of fuel. So he called 60 seconds and then he called standby for 30 seconds, oh. 30 seconds. And, you know, when, when Eagle landed, he said that he had eight, he was showing 18 seconds of fuel left. Yeah. And uh, I love to, I love to tell this story. And this, this is what it means to be a flight controller, just who at home was just, just this ordinary guy. Uh He meant, you know, to save this stopwatch for, for history, Uh you know, because he was, you know, really really and truly making history with it and he meant to you know show it at 18 seconds uh-huh. forever well his daughter got hold of it and timed her baton routine oh my gosh while she was in high school with his stopwatch <laughs> you know and, uh, yeah bob bob says that he would have never, uh, he would not have done it again because it had too big of an impact on his family. But his his three daughters, uh, who are or who are in their own rights, just extraordinary people themselves. They they insist that after 1969, when Apollo 11 landed, he was daddy again. He was the best daddy that he could have ever been, and and they. They almost cringe when he says that on the film because, you know, they feel that he's too hard on himself. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, that's good. That's nice to hear that his daughters are supportive like that and are able to say that, that he's too tough yeah. on himself. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's almost like, you know, what you said before where none of this really existed before. None of these guys grew up, you know, knowing that they were going to be in mission control or the flight director or anything like that, were they just kind of, a lot of them had, you know, maybe aviation backgrounds or something like that, but did these guys really know what they were getting into when they started this? No, no. I mean, I, I, I think they had an idea of what it could be, of what could, you know, what was taking place. But probably one of my favorite lines uh, throughout this whole process is Jerry Bostick, who was the chief of the flight dynamics branch. Uh, that was basically the the section of mission control uh, that that dealt with the trajectory of the spacecraft. They they basically pointed the spacecraft where it needed to go. Okay. And Jerry Bostick said that when they started, 
they simply didn't know that it couldn't be done. Right. And, you know, you, you think about that for a second, it really, it really kind of leans on you a little bit because, you know, if they had thought, well, you know, we're just, we're just in this collecting a paycheck until they cancel the program. Yeah. It would have probably likely never went anywhere, Mm -hmm. but you know, when they went to work, they were, they were in it for real. Yeah. They, They were the real deal with a, with a clear and concise goal with a set deadline. Yeah. And they were going to get it done. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how the, how your mindset makes such a difference on if you're, if you truly think you can do it or can't and how it subconsciously, I think motivates every decision you make where, you know, there's so many examples, but like the, the four minute mile where it was like, you know, impossible for someone to break the four minute mile, but now it happens all the time because I don't know who the first guy was, but it it was broken. So it's possible now. So let's, let's do it. You know? Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see that kind of stuff. So that is cool where, you know, they just, they weren't, they were never told that it, it can't be done. So they made it happen. Yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. So cool. I love this stuff. (laughs) <laughs> and uh yeah, it's, it was fun to see them talk about their uh splashdown parties too you know <laughs> and their yeah. celebration they're just you know they're just regular guys they would all go they'd have a lot of beer and stuff and and you know celebrate what they had accomplished yeah um i i don't know that i could have hung at one of those parties uh, I, I, yeah um, oh wow I, i'm i'm a nice sunday school teacher uh <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I, I don't believe that some of those splashdowns, you know, I, I don't believe that I could have survived some of those splashdown parties. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's fun. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they would talk about how, you know, they you're watching the footage from Apollo 11 when they do they finally land on the moon. And, you know, everybody in the back room is applauding and celebrating. I'm sure the whole world's excited. But in Mission Control, they can't they still have a lot to worry about. They can't break and lose focus and celebrate. They still have to worry, you know, is the, is the, um, module going to tip over or anything like that. So, you know, there's a lot to it. They can't just always focused, you know, that's a, that's another awesome, uh, Bob Carlton story. Uh, when Eagle landed, uh, when he settled, when it, when it settled down in the sea of tranquility, you know, of course, there was that celebration. You know, in the in the the viewing room, mm-hmm. uh, it, but on on Bob's uh, console audio, you can hear that ruckus in the background. But Bob, the entire time, never breaks character. He mm-hmm. never breaks out of flight 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 controller mode. Mm-hmm. The whole time, he's telling these he's telling these backroom people. Watch the bird. Watch the bird. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's, you know, of course, talking about eagle. Yeah. You know, the whole time, one of his flight, one of his backroom support people, you know, made some kind of wow comment, you know, like that. But you know, Bob would settle down. Yeah, you know, we, we got to make sure that the bird's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and just hearing him tell that story was just awesome. Yeah. And then, and then they would eventually have, you know, 
after things seemed okay, they would have their their celebration in Mission Control with um, they had well, there was like three steps to it, wasn't it? Where they would all have a cigar or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I think the final I think the final I think the first step I think was when they saw the parachutes. The second step was when they got plucked out of the water, I think. And, and I'm just doing this from memory. This might not be exact, but uh-huh. I know that the final, the final step was when the astronaut's feet hit the deck of the carrier. Right. That, that, was, that was the moment when, when, for mission control, they could really cut loose and, and, and celebrate. You know, because that's that's when they were back home, you know, because while they were still in the water, uh, that spacecraft could sink. Uh, and it did on one occasion. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. Uh, thankfully, not with the astronauts still inside, but uh, it sank in the Atlantic Ocean and it, it took them. Uh, that was that flight was 1961 and it took them until 1999 to recover the spacecraft. Oh wow! Yeah, because it was it was in water deep uh, deeper than the Titanic. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, hitting the, hitting the the feet hitting the carrier deck was was the final stage. Yeah, and then they could the the responsibility for the astronauts was now on the the captain or, or of the of the carrier now, right? Correct. Yeah. 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 That is very, it's fun to see the the culture and stuff and how, you know, they talk about, you know, during those, those two days of Apollo 13, where, um, you know, they're trying to figure everything out. Everybody just rushed in and no one showered or put deodorant on or brushed their teeth. And it just was a big stank in that room and everybody's smoking It's you know, it's, it's stuff you don't think about, but I think it really adds to the the story and to kind of put yourself in there to experience, to feel what they were experiencing, you know? Yeah. Well, it was actually closer to four days. Oh, was it? Wow. Yeah, that was, uh, the accident took place Monday night and uh, Odyssey didn't settle down into the Pacific Ocean until Friday. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and, and that that was probably the best example of teamwork that was ever exhibited uh, in uh, Mission Control because no one person, no matter what any movie might maybe kind of sort of lead you to believe, and I'm not going to you know, get into the whole, that whole thing, mm-hmm. uh, but no one person was responsible. You there? Yep, I'm here. Okay, our lights just flickered again. I'm sorry. Oh, no worries. Uh, but um, no one person was responsible uh, for the safe return of of that crew. Uh, that was, you know, the flight dynamics people. They had to de- determine uh, the trajectory of the spacecraft. Uh, the systems guys had to figure out, had to try to figure out a way to to um, conserve their consumables like water. Uh, most importantly, water because you know they were running out of that pretty quick. Uh, they had to uh, conserve their their electricity, their power. Uh, you know, so yeah, it was it was a pretty that was a pretty extraordinary story. Yeah. So how um, I'm not entirely sure about the like how does the organization of everything work? Because we always see, you know, mission control where there there's just every guy kind of has his own little station and everything. But then there's also they're communicating with. Uh, a team of theirs that's in that's back somewhere else who's also 
doing something else. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, there there was a flight dynamics section that that dealt, like I said, with the tra- trajectory of the spacecraft, and there were there were three consoles, three positions mm-hmm. uh, in that section. Uh, there was a a systems uh, section that dealt with the systems of both the command and service module and the lunar module. Uh, and then you had the Capcom, who was basically the astronaut who was in charge of actually talking to the crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each of those each of those sections, the flight dynamics and the systems guys, each person that sat in the front room was connected to a back room called the staff support room. Okay, and, and they had they had very they had very specialized uh, people uh, who who maybe had a broader view of everything that was going on. You know, they were kind of the you know they were kind of the Google of the of the time. You know, yeah. they could they could put their fingers on the information that they needed, and it was up to the person in the in the front room to sift through that information and figure out what the best thing to do was. Okay. I yeah. See. That makes sense. So it was, it was kind of a pyramid. It was kind of a pyramid of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Basically. Right. Okay. Yeah, and I thought that I didn't, I never really realized that, that, um, about the, uh, the Capcom who would, who was essentially the one person who would communicate with the astronauts. Right. Yes. And they were they were an astronaut themselves who trained with the astronauts up there. So they would be familiar with exactly the stuff that the astronauts up up in the ship were familiar with and the exact lingo and and jargon and everything. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's just that's so genius. I wouldn't have even I never knew that, but it makes total sense. Well, you know, it's it's kind of funny the things that they thought of. Yeah. That needed to be done. You know, and that was just, you know, the Capcom being a, a fellow astronaut who spoke the same language was just one of the details that, that needed to come together to make this all happen. Yeah. They just had so much foresight for things like that. It was, it's just amazing to think of, think through every, every little potential bottleneck like that, which it, it's oh, yeah. pretty cool to see. Yeah. Um, so what is, you know, when we're looking, when I look, we saw like the footage of the um, from the documentary. It looked like there was there's kind of the old uh, mission control center where it's they still kind of have the same old maybe older computers and stuff. But then there's all is there a newer one that they had built with newer yeah. screen? Okay. Yeah. Uh, the the one that you're referring to the you know the older one uh, that was it. Uh, um, it wasn't Kennedy Space Center then. I don't think. Uh, but that was at Cape Canaveral. That was it. That was in Florida, mm-hmm. you know, because the the launch pad and control room during Mercury uh, was was in Florida. Okay. Uh, the new mission control room uh, in Houston uh, went into effect uh, the first flight of uh, the Gemini program. Uh, I, I think okay. I, I think what happened was the first flight of the Gemini program. Uh, was actually controlled out of Florida, but Houston had uh, backup capabilities. They were they were basically just monitoring the test and making sure all the equipment was you know was working correctly. Okay. And then Gemini Four, uh, Houston took over for good. Okay, I see. So yeah. 
Okay, so Houston is now they just kind of kept updating that that mission control room, and that's the one they use now and 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 have used. But um, the one in Florida, well, it's, not, it's not the same room now. It's oh. in the same building. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it so is the older one still kind of there in in Texas? <laughs> um, the one the the mission control room. Uh, that controlled uh, all the Apollo missions. Yeah, uh, with the exception of Apollo Seven, uh, it was controlled out of a of a of an identical room on the second floor. Uh, the Apollo mission control room uh, is on the third floor of the Christopher Craft Mission Control Building, oh. uh, and it's actually in the process of being refurbished. Oh, and you know when when I first visited the room. It was it was basically dead. Uh, you know, none of the consoles were original to the time. Uh, none of them were powered up. You know, the cert- the displays certainly weren't working. Uh, it it was basically just an empty room, mm-hmm. uh, save for the consoles. Uh, what they're what they're doing now uh, is they've sent those consoles to uh, the Kansas Cosmosphere, uh, where they're being refurbished and and you know uh, brought back up to you know period correctness. And they're in time for the 50th anniversary in July. Uh, they're going to have that mission control room set back up exactly like it was on on that day. Oh my gosh. And I can't wait to see it because, you know, like I said, you know, every time I've ever visited that room, uh, it was, you know, just basically, you know, kind of, kind of dead. And I, and I did get the chance to be a consultant and extra on the set of the first man movie that was just released, you know, a few months ago about Neil Armstrong, uh, Ryan Gosling. And all that kind of thing. I got to be an extra uh, and a consultant on the mission control set. And when I went there, it was just, I can't begin to tell you how cool an experience it was when I stepped foot on the, onto the set. Mm-hmm. Because it was very accurate. Yeah. Uh, they had papers and they had notebooks and they had ashtrays and they had food and all the consoles were powered up and all the displays at the front of them were powered up. And it was, it was kind of a cool situation. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. was, it was very cool to see that room, a, a, a representation of that room alive. Yeah. Oh, so cool. And now we're going to get the real, the real one brought back to the way yeah. it was. So is that oh, going to yeah. be, is that just kind of a special thing or is that going to be open to the public? Uh, they're not going to be able to go in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's probably one of the issues that had kind of taken place before, you know, people just kind of flop down in the seats and, yeah. you know, I, I, I've actually seen, uh, you know, papers that people, you know, trash that people had stuck up under the plastic. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and just treated the place with disrespect. Yeah. You know, not everybody, not everybody has the, 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 the respect for history that I did that first time that I walked in, you know, to, to a bunch of school kids, you know, many times it's just another stop on a, on a, on a field trip, but, uh, they, most are not going to be allowed into the, you know, actual room, uh, but they'll be able to go into the viewing room right behind. Okay. 
cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So I want to definitely check that out. Sounds really cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it'll be extraordinary. Man. Well, Rick, this was so fun talking to you. I love this stuff. <laughs> it's so interesting. And with the 50th anniversary coming up, it's great. Um, so what's what's next for you? Do you have any uh, anything else planned or what are you what are you working on now? Well, I'm doing I'm I'm kind of dipping my toes back into the uh, the NASCAR world. Uh, I've got a NASCAR history podcast that I truly love doing. Uh, I've got a project hopefully coming up that, you know, I'm, I'm truly excited about, I can't really say, uh, you know, some of my NASCAR people might see this and, you know, let the cat out of the bag, but, uh, (laughs) yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm kind of dipping my toes back into the NASCAR world a little bit. Cool. Awesome. Glad to see it. It looks, I mean, I could just tell from the smile on your face. It looks like you truly enjoy it and it seems very fun. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you being on Rick. Super fun to talk to you. Um, I'm going to have links to all your books on Amazon in the show notes for for folks to click on and and check all those out. Um, is there anywhere else you want to send people to? No, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Perfect. If they want to listen, if they want to listen to the podcast, that'd be great. Yes. Yes. I'll definitely throw a link to the podcast too, the NASCAR podcast. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Rick, truly super fun to talk to you. This stuff is so, it's just awesome. So thank you for being on and and taking the time. Okay, man. Thank you. You, Thank you. Well, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Rick Houston, author of Go Flight. I certainly did. He had some Really cool stuff to share. Definitely enjoyed it. And that was it. That's the end of the moon landing series. It's the 50th anniversary since we landed on the moon. Wow. Uh, This was really fun to go through and and talk to all these guys. I've seriously enjoyed it and learned a bunch. Got me super excited about NASA and space travel and going back to the moon and to Mars and everything that's going on. So hopefully you got a little bit of that too. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. If you want to share this four part series with your friends and family and other people, appreciate that on social media or with your mouth, you can say it to them. Um, that's it. Curiosityness.com is the website where we're at. Oh, and we're on social media at, at Curiosityness Podcast on Instagram. You can find us there. There's links to all this stuff in the show notes, so I won't talk about it anymore. But uh, that's it. I'll see you in episode 62. Goodbye.